0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehilat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are um, in Parshat Chayei Sarah this morning. Uh, because we were closed last week, we did not read a bunch of stuff past right Avraham's election. Right, So we have Avraham chosen, Avraham, we looked at Lech Lecha, we looked at some of the contemporary interpretations of what Lech Lecha might be about, because it's written kind of grammatically in an odd way, even for Hebrew. Uh, and so we got Avraham's commissioning, and then boom, Sarah's dead at the beginning of this week's Parsha. So we have skipped an entire right series of stories that have to do with Abraham and Sarah and infertility and struggling with that and trying to buy uh land which was not which was exorbitant for people who uh, were not native um Abraham spends an arm and a leg for a cave in which to bury Sarah um the cave of Machpelah uh we have the Akedah we have the binding of Isaac we have like all this stuff that goes on and then boom we are at the end of Sarah's life and we are introduced to kind of now the stories of the next generation. So the stories of Yitzchak and Rivka, Isaac and Rebecca. Uh, so as you know, I, I always read on the triennial for 25 years as a rabbi. I've read religiously on the triennial. So to keep me honest, um, I'm not honest anymore. <laughs> I have left reading the triennial for this year. It's a trial run. Robin is a fan. She wrote me an email that she's a fan um, of this new way of doing it. But so it's for this year. I'm going to try it. We're going to see what happens, which is for me to just kind of pick where I'm at with a part of these stories um, from the Parsha with um, focusing a lot on contemporary interpretations um, of – of some of these lines of Torah. So, because we've studied, we've studied a lot together. This is my 13th year teaching here. So we've studied a lot of these texts in depth in the mafarshim, the classical uh, commentators and unpacking biblical Hebrew and unpacking the biblical worldview and all that stuff. So we're, we're hanging out a little bit in contemporary interpretations um, of whatever I feel moved by this particular week. <laughs> Jodi doesn't do well with change. Okay. So there you go. Robin's in favor. Jodi's not so sure because change is a hard thing. Okay. That's fair. So we're get, so we're starting not at the beginning of the Parsha, uh, where, which is where we get told about the death of Sarah because I want to talk a little bit about Rivka and Yitzchak. So I want to do a little bit about Rebecca and Isaac. Uh, and so we're going to start, um, at chapter 24. So the first words of the Parsha are, the life of Sarah was 100 and whatever it is. That, thank you, 127. Um, thank you. And it's actually her death, right? Thank you, Lisa. Um, okay. So we're going to skip to chapter 24 so that we can do a little bit of the story of Yitzhak and Rivka. We, we know about Isaac. We're introducing Rebecca um, at this part of this Parsha. So, and Abraham was old, his old age kind of arrived, uh, and God had blessed Abraham in everything. There's a lot of commentary about what the heck does that mean, but we're not going to go there. All right. And Abraham said to the senior servant of his household who had charge of all that he owned, put your hand under my thigh. Then I will make you swear by the God of heaven and the God of the earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to the land of my birth and get a wife for my son, Isaac. Then Eliezer raises a whole bunch of questions, whatever. So right away, what we're told is Avraham is not going to take a wife for Yitzhak from the place he has settled. He wants Isaac's wife, we're not told why. There's no exploration of it in Torah. There's lots of exploration in it outside of Torah. Um, the, it's very clear Avraham wants someone who has had the same experience that he has. He wants, a, he's called an Ivri, right? Sometimes we've translated that as Hebrew. Lavor uh, means to cross over. So Avraham is identified as an Ivri, one who has crossed over. So uh, he wants an Ivriya for his son. He wants somebody who has crossed over from where he came from to where he's living now. We can speculate for a long time about why that is. But what this introduces also is the fact that much of the literature focuses on the fact that Rivka is the new Avraham. That it is not Yitzchak who is like Avraham. Instead, it is Rivkah, who is very much like Avraham and becomes the next generation of, of Abraham and Sarah. But, but that really, that everyone sees a lot of parallels between Avraham and Rivkah. This is the first. That she's going to be in Ivriah, just like he was. Okay, so the, the, the servant's concerned. What if she won't come? Yada, yada, yada. We're going to go to verse 10. And the servant took 10 of his masters, meaning Abraham's camels. Just ten of them. I mean, that's a lot of camels. But he took ten, which means Abraham has a lot more than ten. Abraham is very wealthy. He is a sheikh. He is very wealthy. He takes so ten camels laden with gifts um, and sets out, taking with him the bounty of his master. Right? Because why is he taking bounty with him? For the wife, exactly. If you're gonna purchase a bride, you got to buy her. That's right. You better come with some stuff. Oh, exactly. Some, some things never change. Lovely. Okay. Uh, and he made his way to Aram Naharaim, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down by the well outside the city at evening time, the time when women come out to draw water. Generally, it is unmarried women who are given the task for the household of drawing water at the common well. We all know, remember, we know well We know well that the stories that happen at the well are stories of uh finding ones beshered water, fertility, all that good stuff. Okay. So this is a very common thing, the betrothal, you know, kind of thing being set up by the well in the town. And he said, meaning Eliezer. Oh, Adonai, God of my master's house, grant me good fortune this day and deal graciously with my master Avraham. Here I stand by the spring as the daughters of the townspeople come to draw water. Let the maiden to whom I say, please lower your jar that I may drink, and who replies, drink, and I will also water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have decreed for your servant Isaac. Thereby shall I know that you have dealt graciously with my master. So, not to put too fine a point on it, Elazar says, "God, in order for me to know who the right person is, this is exactly what she has to say." Okay. He had scarcely finished speaking when Rebecca, dun, 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 who was born to Betuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. Remember, big water drawing jars made of you know clay. Um, when they are full, they are. Very heavy. The maiden was, of course, very beautiful. In the biblical worldview, beauty is a sign of divine favor. And, of course, a virgin, no man having known her. We've said this before. I'll say it again. This is how we know from Torah that betulah means an unmarried female. It does not mean a virgin. The Mary story describes Mary as a betulah. She's an unmarried female. She's not necessarily a virgin. It's a mistranslation. The assumption was an unmarried female of good standing was a virgin, but we get here she was unmarried, betulah. Her status is an unmarried female, lo she that she had not known a man. Okay, so those are different. Obviously, Torah not, you know, doesn't do Department of Redundancy Department. So if it says betulah, betulah cannot mean by definition a virgin. Ah, yeah, right? Come here. You learn about all kinds of things. Um, So she went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. The servant ran toward her and said, Please let me sip a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said. And she quickly lowered her jar upon her hand and let him drink. Quick. She's being quick. All right, this is very important. When she let him drink his fill, she said... I will also draw for your camels until they finish drinking. Ta 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 yay. Okay. Quickly emptying her jar into the trough, she ran back to the well to draw and she drew for all the camels. She's very right, she's running. Camels drink fifty-five gallons of water in three minutes. <laughs> they drink fifty-five gallons of water in three minutes. There are ten camels. There's one Rebecca. How many jugs does it take for Rebecca to water? Uh, Yeah, the math guy has got his hand up. The math professor raises his hand. He just did all that in his head. All right, right. So you get you get the idea. 55 gallons in three minutes. She's gonna water ten camels till they have drunk their fill. That is a lot of heavy lifting, right? So she draws for all the camels. She's hurrying to do all this. She's running eagerly to do all this. M- the man, meanwhile, stood gazing at her silently, wondering whether God had made his errand successful or not. What is unclear? What's unclear? This is serious. Like, he's, this is a serious question he has. Who does she have to be? She has to be from the family. He doesn't know yet who she is. She has to be from the clan. Okay? Huh? Okay. On this point, anyway, Carol Kleinman decides to agree with me. Okay. She decides to accept my interpretation. Okay. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold nose ring weighing half shekel and two gold bands for her arms, ten shekels in weight. Then he asks who she is, and she replies, I am the daughter of Betuel, the son of Milka, whom she bore to Nahor. Yay! She's from the clan. Check, check, check. All right. So what does Rebecca learn in this incident, in this exchange? What has she learned? Huh? That you should stay away from camels. Okay. That may be one thing that she learned. Um, Not yet. She hasn't fallen off yet. Um, okay. So what she has learned, what's a gold nose ring, half a shekel, and a bunch of gold armbands? What does that indicate? this guy is wealthy. They that was a sign of beauty and a sign of or of being adorned in the ancient world was you you put a nose ring in. So um and so, and and it's it's expensive. Like what he gives her is expensive. So it's very clear that this person is is representing someone who is wealthy. Right? That's what she knows. All right. Well, well she doesn't know that yet, but she knows that, you know, possibly because she just watered all his camels all right 49 and now if you mean to treat my master with true kindness tell me so now Eliezer has gone to her family he's asking for her hand in marriage he's explained the whole situation with Abraham and yada 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 so now he's done telling his story and he says if you mean to treat my master with true kindness with chesed right chesed is Abraham tell me and if not tell me also Right. That I can figure out what I need to do. Are you in or are you out? I got things to do. Right. I got to find another person if it's not going to be this this person from your house. Then Lavan and Bituel answered. The matter was clearly decreed by God. So we can't say one way or the other. Obviously, God took care of this. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go. Let her be a wife to your master's son, as Adonai has spoken when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed low to the ground before God. The servant brought out objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he gave presents to her brother and her mother. Dad is missing. Then he and the entourage under him ate and drank and they spent the night. That's the way you close, right? You begin to close a deal as you have a festive meal. When they arose the next morning, he said, OK, I'm going but her brother and her mother said, Let the maiden remain with us some ten days, then you may go. It was traditional to fet a bride for seven to ten days in the ancient Near East. So but why why pull that? Right? They obviously said, Oh, it's it's out of our hands. God has decreed that this is what's gonna happen, right? So doesn't mean you can't have a party. But do they really want the expense of a party? They want to be sure of what? The person who sent her all these gifts means business that he really does want to marry her and not just take her as a concubine. Well, how's, how are they going to know that at the end of 10 days? Well, they figure more information might come in in that time, and the, the camels are going to need more water. So. If this guy is fooling them, who's going to bring information that says, oh, right, right I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think they're stalling because they want more stuff. They want more gifts, 10 camels laden with stuff. They see what he gave Rebecca. They got given gifts. If there's 10 days of these banquets, there may be a lot more loot. And we know Laban, don't we? Don't we? Because we know what's coming. We know who he is, right? He's a gunner, right? Okay. So whatever we don't we we were not told, but they stall. They say mm, 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 mm. she need we she needs to be here ten more days, right? So this is a negotiating tactic, right? He says, "Do not delay me now. That clearly, as y'all indicated, God has made my errand successful. Let me go. Y'all said so. Y'all even admitted that this was done by right a bigger hand than ours. And they said, how do they break the stalemate?" Pitch. Let us call the girl and ask for her reply.
0: Yeah, I'll fix that.
1: Mm-hmm. So now we're going to see what does Rebecca have to say when she's called. Um, and they called to Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And what does she answer? Yep. What does she Yep. And what does she answer in the Hebrew? Last word of verse 58. Hebrew. will I Ring any that. bells? I will go. Lech lecha. Lech lecha. God walk. says to Abraham, Lech lecha. Abraham has to, has to agree to Lech, right? That's how his whole story starts is that he agrees to go. They say to her, will you go with this guy? Hatelchi? Will you go? And she says, Eilech. She is completely resonant in so many ways of the language used about Abraham. Right. The alacrity with which she runs to fill the water. This is Abraham greeting the strangers. Right. They run to get food and run and hurry to uh, take care of the strangers. Um, When he's told, take your son. he, He wakes up very early in the morning and saddles his own donkey. Right. So he's this is Abraham. This is what one of the many qualities of Abraham is, as Mark lo, loves to talk about, the aspect of Zrizut, of being, hurrying to do not only the right thing, but stuff that's hard, stuff that's really hard, but he rushes to do it. This is the same language used about Rivka, who runs and runs and runs and is eager to to do something no matter how hard it is. Eilich, I will go.
2: You mentioned earlier that... Rebecca being in Ivria is and demonstrating hesed at the well makes the argument for hesed being the through line of the Abrahamic line as opposed to the biological Abrahamic line it's sort of almost like i will make i will make of you a great nation not because of your genes but because you will be hesed I know Rebecca will be chesed, there will be lines of chesed throughout time.
1: That is absolutely the rabbinic commentary, Mm -hmm. and certainly the mystical commentary says that that is is the point, that she demonstrates that she is worthy of being the next generation. It's not so much Yitzchak, it's Rivka who's the one who's going to carry chesed into this generation. (laughs) Uh, that it has hesed, the word hesed, in this Parsha many times.
2: It's like all over the
1: parsha. Yes, and it's all over the Parsha on purpose, right? Th- this is the, the aspect that's connected to Avraham. So it is not, commentators believe, it is not an accident that this is the language used of Rivka. Okay, so they sent off their sister Rivka and her nurse along with Avraham's servant and his entourage. Okay, meanwhile... Back at the ranch, right? So Rivka and her maids arose, mounted the camels, and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and went his way. Now we're back at the ranch. Isaac had just come back from the vicinity of Be'er-Lahai-Roi, for he was, he was settled in the region of the Negev. And Isaac went out walking in the field toward evening, and looking up, he saw camels approaching. Raising her eyes, Rebecca saw Isaac. She alighted from the camel. In Hebrew, literally, vatipol me'al hagamal. She fell off her camel. <laughs> and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field toward us? And the servant said, That is my master. Thank so you. she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Isaac then brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah and he took Rebekah as his wife. Isaac loved her and thus found comfort after his mother's death. Okay, so Yitzchak is coming back from the vicinity of what? Be'er Lahai Ro'i. What do we know from Be'er Lahai Ro'i? Why do we care? Ah, that's where Hagar sees the well. Why does Hagar need a well so badly? Because Ishmael is about to die yes. of thirst. Why are they in a place where they don't have food or water? Banished. They have been sent out. By whom? Avraham. All right. So there's a breach in Avraham's house. His oldest son and Hagar, the son's mother, are, we've read this a couple of ways. They're either banished or They are freed. So he's not going to inherit with Yaakov. So according to Mesopotamian law, she must be freed. Hagar and her son must be freed if he is disinherited. He was the heir. He's been disinherited by Sarah in favor of Yitzchak. She must be freed, Hagar and Yishmael. So either they're banished or they're freed. In any case, Be'er Lahai is where she encounters, right? This She encounters a Malach. She encounters the well. She has this experience of life-saving, and her son now will become a great nation. What's Isaac doing there? So that's one question that intrigued me this year was, yeah, what the heck is Isaac doing in Be'er L'Hai roi? He lives in the Negev. What? Like, what's he doing there? If that's a place associated with Hagar and Ishmael, he goes back to his mother's tent. His mother's tent is not in Be'er L'Hairoi. So, like, why, you know, he left home and went to Be'er. He was returning from the vicinity of Be'er L'Hairoi. What was he doing there? Okay, so let's just hold that question for a second. He's coming back. He's out in he goes out into the field. Lasuach basadeh. We had a whole year. I know you probably forgot. We had a whole year where all we looked at were sources that talked about what was Isaac doing. Lasuach. What does that mean? It really means to speak, to have conversation. But he's alone, presumably. So who is he talking to? So for the rabbis, who do you think the rabbis think he's talking to? God. Of course, he's davening. Of course. What else would Yaakov, I mean, what else would Yitzchak be doing? He's davening. Of course. So he's out in the field, talking to God, having some kind of meditative experience, right? Hit, Hitbo for Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlov and the Bratzlover Chasidim. They, they take an hour before Tefillah. They take an hour before prayer to go outside and to talk to God out loud for an hour before they go into prayer. So this is an actual practice. So they, they read that, they retroject that onto Isaac. That what's he doing? Having a conversation in the field when he's by himself. He's obviously talking out loud, as is the Hasidic custom, talking out loud to God. Okay. So it's at that moment when he's, it's at that moment that he lifts his eyes and sees camels coming. Is that a coincidence? In Torah, coincidences are God's way of staying not so anonymous, right? And according to the interpretations, it's of course at this moment, just like with Hagar. It doesn't say God created a well and put it next to Hagar. What does the text tell us about Hagar? Her eyes opened up, but her eyes open up and she sees the well. What's different is that she sees it. It's not that it hasn't been there the whole time. Her seeing is somehow different, right, after this divine. Okay. Okay. So, so we have to hold that at this moment that Yitzchak, while he's lasuaching basadeh, he sees, at this moment, he sees his betrothed, right? She sees him and falls off her camel. She veils herself when she's told this is her betrothed. Why? Possibly, Tikva freymer suggests, Dr. Kensky of blessed memory suggests that women in the ancient Near East who were betrothed or married needed to veil. Hence, how was Yaakov tricked into marrying Leah? She was veiled. So, right, this is why we take the veil off at a Jewish wedding. Um, Right, we veil the bride at bedeken. Then we take it off under chuppah, so that the groom is sure who he's marrying. So it's so Leah was betrothed; she was veiled, and so he was tricked. So that suggests to Fry kensky that even betrothed women veiled. But we know, according to Assyrian law, married women had to veil. So it's very likely this was the custom. Once Rebecca sees her intended. It's now a reality that she is betrothed to him. Her status has changed. He could have died before they got there, right? He could have disappeared and said, I'm out of here. He didn't. So now she is betrothed. She veils. That's poss- possible. Okay. And so then she, he takes her into his mother's tent by lying with her. They are married, right? There was no wedding ceremony. He takes her into his mother's tent Um, He lies with her. He loves her. And he is comforted after the death of his mother. This is one of the only times we are told in Torah that someone loves someone. One of the only times we are told that it's assumed wives and husbands loved each other. That's not that it wasn't assumed. It's assumed. But that wasn't the most important thing. Right. What's the most important thing is that your family's going to get along and the clan is going to prosper on this based on this union. So they so he loves her. And it's one of the few times we're told anything about something like comfort after grieving. It's not that he's comforted because his arm got cut off and somebody gave him anesthesia. Right. It, he's comforted about something that's happening emotionally. What it tells us the loss of his mother. And so this is one of the few times Torah is is involved in the inner life and the emotional life of what's happening between characters. For that reason, what it gets heightened, right? It's a big old highlighter um, on this sentence because it's so unusual for Torah. I'm asking a question that I think Mark might be asking. Why does he take her to his mother's tent? All right, so let's look up some commentary. So I made us a sheet (laughs) to talk a little bit about exactly this scene. Isaac had just come back, blah, 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 right? She gets off the camel. Um, She veils. Isaac then brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he took Rebecca as his wife. He loved her and found comfort after his mother's death. Okay, a midrash says that... There was no light in Sarah's tent until Yitzchak brings Rivka into that tent, and then there was once again light in Sarah's tent. Hang on.
0: You know, I wonder if there, uh, is a, it seems to me there's a piece missing about when uh, she leaves her clan. There's nothing said about, um, or, or, or uh, possibly implied, about any feelings that they had about her departure from the clan. But when she comes to Isaac, um, there's all kinds of information about her being loved.
1: Correct. So Torah doesn't care about her family's reaction. Torah doesn't care. First of all, it was normative. It was normative that a bride leaves there. That was always going to happen. It just wasn't necessarily going to be to Canaan. But she married well. The family got a lot of money, a good dowry, and... And she married well, and she's going to marry into the family of a sheikh, his son, who's going to inherit everything for them. It's like this is, and particularly for Laban, this is good. She did her job. She got them a lot of money. She did better than her job.
0: You know, I'm just wondering about the point that it was dark in the tent. I think that's a significant reality. He lived three years in that dark tent where his mother That's died?
1: That's the Midrash. Okay. Yep, it that, that was three years. Um, that he lives, you know, with the darkness of the loss of his mother. What does the Midrash say about when Sarah dies? Do you remember? I preached on this on a Rosh Hashanah sermon. The angel comes to her and says, do you know where your son is? Where's your husband? Not the angel, Satan. Satan sends, Satan says to Sarah, where's your husband? Where's your son? and Sarah's like uh I don't know they left before I was up right they, he got up early in the morning remember really early meaning before you're supposed to get up and left and so Satan says well here's what happened you know that invisible god your your guys listening to all the time that told him lech lecha and all that stuff and now y'all moved here right where it's a lot colder and all this, okay that same invisible god said to Abraham sacrifice your son And your husband agreed. Did Satan lie? Satan tends not to lie. Right? The Nachash didn't lie in the garden. And Satan did not lie. It's true. Avraham agreed to sacrifice Isaac. And it's at that moment that she dies. There is a Midrash, to Lee's point, there is a Midrash that says it's when she sees him, when she sees Isaac alive that she dies. Because she realizes the devar mu'at, right? The very tiny thing that separated him from being gone. That she was told he's dead, then he's not, but she realized how close he came, and that devar mu'at kills her. The awareness of the, how thin the line is between life and death kills Sarah. All right. So, so, so Sarah's death is not unrelated according to tradition to Isaac, right? So it's, it's not unrelated. Isaac's relationship to his father, post akedah, we can imagine was complicated, right? Remember, Abraham raises the knife, and the malach has to call Abraham twice to get his attention to say, "Don't do it." That's what Isaac saw: the knife raised. <laughs> so that relationship, right, is kind of complicated, right? For Rivka, we don't know her backstory, but sh- but she has suffered a rupture that Mark points to. Of she has now left any connection to any family. She has no access now to family. She's completely in the hands of this family. If they are terrible, horrible abusers, oh well, you have no family to protect you and nowhere to run. Okay, so that's a situation we're dealing with. Oh, so going to um. Going to Why Sarah's Tent. You tell me. Why Sara's Tent? Without getting too psychological about it. Why Sarah's Tent? It represented um, warmth and love. His mother, the memories of his mother.
0: And, and it also represents that this is the new matriarch.
1: Ha! That, that I'll buy. It represents love. So what? So What? It represents love. He takes her there because she is the wife of the future patriarch. Sarah's tent is hers. She's going to be the matriarch. The line is going to continue through Rivka. That tent is hers. She is, that is her place now. The bigger question is, why is it Sarah's tent? Well, everyone's looking at me confused. Why is it, why is it called Sarah's tent? When the angels came, when the angels came, how did Sarah know what was going on? Why is it not Abraham and Sarah's tent? When the angels come, Sarah hears what's going on because she's in Abraham's tent. Huh? They're not living together. They're living in different places. He has to come to where she is to bury her. They're not together. Hagar's been gone. You know, the commentary wants to suggest his new wife Keturah is actually Hagar. I don't know how that, how that uncomplicates anything, but... Okay. Um, all right. As a future bride, Rebecca is approaching her new home. Blah, 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 blah. Here, where you can see my cursor. However, the Torah makes it a point of telling us that Isaac had just come from a place called Be'er L'Hairo'i. Be'er L'hai Roe is the place where Hagar and Ishmael, Isaac's half-brother, found themselves hungry and thirsty after being sent out by Sarah and Abraham. Now... What do you suppose Isaac was doing at this place, especially just before his marriage? All of his life, Isaac had been haunted by the absence of his half-brother. Why should a brother be expelled? Maybe it was my fault, the young Isaac agonized. How could my parents, the epitome of kindness and hospitality, put out a young boy and his mother in the desert? But now, with Sarah dead... Isaac could finally explore his brother's agony. And so he goes to the place where his brother suffered so. Suffered from not only thirst and hunger, but from the terrible sense of rejection by his father. So it's not accident that he's at Be'er Lahai Rui. His mother's dead. Now he has permission. How many times have you heard, or has that happened in your life? Once a parent dies... You have permission. Some people don't convert to Judaism until their parent dies. Some people who are adopted don't search for their birth family until their parent dies. There are some things that are not open for us to explore because they're too painful for the family for us to go there. And I think it is a, it is a beautiful, um, it's just a beautiful thing to think about that Isaac maybe sees that he has the opportunity now to address a different part of his parents the kind of crazy part of avraham that was ready to kill him but also the avraham and sarah that would send out a slave woman and her son with not enough provisions to survive how does he reconcile those people with the parents you know who loved him and raised him The Torah, I mean, this commentary on the Torah seems to be suggesting he can't until Sarah is dead. Then he can kind of go to Be'er L'Hairoi and kind of confront the reality uh, and deal with that. Okay. This is Rabbi Yael Shai, who you know I love. Rebecca humbles herself before Isaac at the moment they first see each other in the fields, either falling or descending from her camel, covering herself with her veil. veil. Um, Isaac brings Rebecca to his mother's tent, his place of deepest suffering and grief. The first explicit love story in the Torah reverberates with vulnerability from both of the protagonists, which perhaps is the most important requirement for love. Brene Brown says there can be no intimacy, emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, physical intimacy without vulnerability. It's about being honest with how we feel, about our fears, about what we need, about asking for what we need. Vulnerability is a glue that holds intimate relationships together. When Isaac and Rebecca fall in love, they meet each other fully as they are, raw, unfiltered, with a generous, open, and vulnerable heart. Our challenge is to meet the world with the same. So to that point, he takes her into Sarah's tent, because Sarah's tent is the place of his greatest pain. His greatest agony is to walk into that tent, to smell his mother's perfume, to touch the things she wore, and she's gone, right? So for him, this is bringing Rebecca into the place of his deepest pain, his greatest vulnerability is, of course, the places of our greatest vulnerability are, of course, our places of greatest pain, right? Right? They're this they're they're synonymous in some ways. Um And so he's willing to be vulnerable enough to bring her to that place where he hurts the most. And she's willing to step in there. And she has stepped away from everything that's going to keep her safe. She has stepped into ultimate vulnerability. Right. One can what, what does it require to step into love from a place of complete vulnerability? It requires, trust. it requires trust, right? So she's willing and that takes an incredible amount of courage, right? Which is what Brene Brown talks about the courage to be vulnerable and that vulnerability is the key to everything. Vulnerability for Brene Brown is the key to strength that no one who is strong No one who is courageous has not been willing to be vulnerable. We can say there are lots of people who, you know, have never been. Are they truly strong? Brene Brown argues, no, they're not. They're narcissists. They're, you know, bullies. They're whatever. Those by definition are not people who are strong. People who are truly courageous and truly strong are people who are willing, when it's appropriate, to be vulnerable and to move through that. Mark?
0: You know so much of, of all of this sounds as though, in a way, it's organized around libidinal issues and defenses against libidinal issues, but i it's, I think it's really organized uh, in another way. It's organized around issues of attachment and uh, vulnerability of course I, I uh, yes, so it raises, for me it kind of raises a question of just playing with those ideas why does uh, Why does the Torah present it? as though it's a libidinal issue, when that's not what they're talking about.
1: The, the Torah presents the reality.
0: I mean, it, it is a reality, but also there, there's the question of what what are the uh, the acute uh, emotional issues that are involved, and they're all attachment issues, not libidinal issues,
1: really. Uh, okay, but but the, Torah's using this scene to talk about, I, I think their experiences of at least Isaac's experience of brokenness in this family and the possibility that having a relationship where one is ready to be vulnerable is one of the ways we heal it's one of the ways we survive those terrible things that happen to us those fissures and breakages that happen in our family of origin and he's got plenty he's the character par excellence who's got family issues right and and I believe Torah coming to say he finds the only way he finds comfort is through a relationship with another human being. Right. And and that that's how a lot of us survive and heal from those families. Family of origin traumas is by building healthy relationships. That's, I mean, I think that's where a lot of these commentaries are going.
0: Right. Divert us from the from the discussion a bit. I think that's that's absolutely true. But um, I think there are all kinds of questions of uh, what's happened to the libidinal barrier. Why are these all issues of attachment, of safety, uh, and so on, um, in places where you might expect libidinal attachment?
1: I don't know. All right, <laughs> you write that essay. As a result. There's a breakage that Aiden Steinsaltz is pointing out. Aiden Steinsaltz is a very famous commentator uh, on Talmud. Uh, he translated the Talmud into English, which is a, you can imagine what what a. There's the Steinsaltz edition of the Talmud that he translated every word. So it's an amazing. He's a was one of the greatest minds of former, the last several former generations. Mathematician too. Huh? Former mathematician
2: too. Former mathematician too. Oh, there you go. Of course.
1: He's going to point out to us. Richard Rajay is going to point out to us that he was a mathematician. Of course. Okay. So a brilliant mind, obviously. So he points out that Sarah has a break with Abraham, that she, once she has, she follows his vision. She does this over. He's going to be a great nation thing. But once she has Isaac and Abraham's willing to sacrifice Isaac Now, Sarah has some serious issues with Abraham because for her, she has two ways of relating to this grand vision. One is the grand vision kind of, you know, ideological thing. But the other one is a familial relationship, the relationship a mother has to her son, that this people's going to survive through this child that you were willing to murder. That's when she moves to another tent. So having made this synthesis, Sarah, between kind of the, pers- the the vision ideal and the personal biological, she's unable to reconcile the inherent contradictions in the Akedah's apparent demand that she give up her son. As for Isaac, we can only imagine what he thinks of God and religion, as well as his parents and family life after the Akedah. We can't help but wonder what messages are sent and what scars are left by Abraham's willingness to take such a risk for the sake of his vision of God. Isaac must be struggling with whether Abraham values his commitment and love for God over his commitment and love for his son. I think about cults when I read this, right? People who, you know, the children are tortured because of the parents' relationship to God. Right? What they understand God to be demanding, and you don't even have to go that far. Like, many Jewish homes, right, have just as twisted a relationship between, you know, what God wants and, and what happens to the children. Perhaps that is why he can't return from Mount Moriah alongside his father. The text, Steinzaltz knows, the text just says that Abraham returns with his servants. We're not told Isaac returns. Isaac is not mentioned. This is why in Islam, right? The sacrifice was completed. It was Ishmael, but the sacrifice was completed. There's a hint of that in Torah. I mean, we know Isaac lives, obviously, but somehow the working through of this trauma centers on Genesis 24, 67 that we just read. There we read that Isaac brings Rebecca into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and thus found comfort after his mother. Tradition understands that Rebecca emulates Sarah and takes her place in Isaac's life, but perhaps The comfort comes from entering the tent itself. This is Pam's interpretation. The tent seems to be new in Sarah's life. Previously, we have the impression she lives in Avraham's tent. Perhaps Sarah's new synthesis of ideological and family commitments makes it necessary for her to define herself apart from Avraham's single-minded devotion to God. Sarah needs a place where she can safely, at God's promises, and where she can, I'm not sure, I just copied and pasted this, so I'm not sure. Probably a typo in the original. Something at God's promises and question God's prophecies. Meaning she's ready to question. You want me to kill my son? I don't think so. Like, what are you thinking, yod vav We have to have a conversation. Like, this is not okay, right? The, uh. In addition, the tent is the place for Sarah as Isaac's mother. The only place she is so referred to in the Torah. It is a symbol of her role as nurturer and caregiver. Third, the tent is the place where both Rebecca and Isaac enter together, man and woman, both entering this place of maternal love and care. So Steinsaltz is saying, Sarah has to leave to a different tent, and it's that tent that Isaac takes Rebecca to. The tent, the tent that Sarah made on her own, apart from Abraham. Willing to synthesize the grand relationship to the prophecies and promises of this invisible God, but also to, to bring into that relationship her commitment to her son and to her family. And Isaac wants to bring Rebecca into the place that's a synthesis of those things, meaning that's what we will inherit is both, not one or the other. Um, and that, that, that that's about love and and that's what he wants with Rivka is to be in to make their their marriage night to be in that place of maternal love and care and a synthesis of both the abstract and the absolutely personal. This portion says Rabbi Shefa Gold tells us how to receive the blessing of comfort that will heal us. Yitzchak Sarah's son goes out from Be'er Lahairo'i, the place that is associated with Hagar the stranger. Remember she's called. Hagar, what is ger? Stranger. So Hagar, the stranger, could be. If you don't have any vowels, her name can read Hagar or it can read Hagar, the stranger. And she's Egyptian. Remember, she's Egyptian. She's a slave. She is a stranger. Where are the Jews going to be strangers? Oh yeah, Egypt. Okay. So Sarah. So he goes out from Be'er the place associated with Hagar, the stranger. Our grief makes us a stranger to life. And we dwell in isolation and alienation until we are ready to love again. So Rabbi Gold is suggesting it's not an accident that Isaac's in Be'er Lehi Roi. He is so grief-stricken with the death of his mother. He's so lonely for her that he goes to the place of the exiled stranger because that's where he can feel yeah, like right, that place resonates for him because he, our grief often makes us a stranger to life, right? When we're sick, when we're grieving, we often feel like kind of the world just keeps going on and we are somehow massively separated from, right? I remember going to a grocery store after one of those periods of time and going, oh my God, like this is, this is normal life. Like, oh right, this was happening all the time I was. Grieving you know, or ill or you know, or whatever people were going to the grocery store, like oh my oh my god um after
2: the death of his mother, aren't Hagar and Ishmael basically the only connection he has left
1: to his former life interesting, so um she doesn't settle there though okay. You know what I mean? Like she, but but I hear what you're saying. So maybe he goes looking for his stepmother. Like or, or, I, I want to connect, and I'm not talking to my there, dad right now, <laughs> right? Well,
2: or or there was right. There's family, but there was a at least a brief period of time where he
1: he he played with his stepbrother. I mean, they were they were playmates. Yes, yeah. which is the other commentary we read, right? Like that he he kind of goes to kind of get in touch with the brother. That got sent away. We have no indication that Isaac wanted Ishmael to go away, right? So maybe he's going searching for some connection to the family before the rupture, before the divorce, or the affair, or maybe both. Um, Okay. Uh, The field, a place of spacious natural beauty, is the setting where he does this conversation with God here we engage in holy conversation, pouring out our grief, anger, and despair, listening deeply for God's voice. And she quotes the Psalms Minha Metzer Karatiya Anani I called out to God who uh, from the narrow places who right who answered me in Rahavia, in an expansiveness, meaning the field. The spaciousness that Isaac achieves in meditation allows him to lift his eyes and behold beauty and the possibility of love. In loving again, we are comforted. There are many perils to the peace and integrity of the soul on the path of mourning. The bitterness, fear, and cynicism that sometimes accompany or follow experiences of tragedy and loss can become obstacles on the path of our soul's journey. Amen. When we react to the feelings of vulnerability that loss brings by building up defenses around the heart and fortifying the small self, then we lose access to our own essence, and she writes, and our ability to be of service. If we follow Isaac's example, we will seek the open field and develop a practice of meditation that will allow us to lift our eyes and open our hearts to love. A beautiful teaching, right, on... Um, it's easy to retreat, to harden, to tighten, um, and that's not that's not helpful, right? It doesn't mean it's not natural. It doesn't mean it's not okay to do for a while, but then we got to go out in the field and start yelling and screaming and yelling, getting it out so that we can move to a place of expansiveness so that that sense of grief and anger and loss and bitterness and all of that doesn't define the rest of our life, um, which I think is just a beautiful teaching. Um, and I'll close with, uh, I love this. So this Torah portion is read always uh close to Kristallnacht. Um, and uh, Rabbi Menachem Creditor was writing um, when Chayes was on the same week as the commemoration of Kristallnacht, which was for us last week. And so he, uh, in quoting this Torah portion, he says, as Auschwitz survivor Dr. Edith Ager has said, we don't cover garlic with chocolate. There is no forgiveness without rage, but love conquers all. We may be hesitant in the face of the Holocaust, and I would say our own personal devastating traumas, to trust in the healing power of love. And yet, if we sit with this statement from a survivor, it becomes even ever more convincing. Because what else, if not love for ourselves and for others, would keep us going? Engaging with the world means we will get And while it is true that we often need to be at peace with ourselves first before we can be at peace with others, it is also true that feeling loved and loving someone in return can ground us, break open our detachment, and make us stronger and more resilient people.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehilat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California.